This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Episode 6 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg of biznews.com. In this episode, South Africa records its first COVID-19 deaths, two women in the Western Cape, whose Premier, Alan Windy, tells us what happened and how prepared the province is for the coming onslaught. We'll also hear about concerns from Discovery's chief clinician, that too many South Africans are not taking the lockdown seriously. But, as our business colleague in London will share, that's not the case in the UK after Prime Minister Boris Johnson was confirmed as having the disease. Also in this episode, a TED Talk guru on how to deal with lockdown-inspired anxiety and the trade-off between lives and restarting economic activity. Here's today's COVID-19 headlines. On Friday morning, South Africa reported its first deaths from COVID-19, women aged 28 and 48, both in Cape Town hospitals. Western Cape Premier Alan Windy told us the deaths came as a surprise as none of the three COVID-19 patients in hospital on Thursday appeared in any danger. By Friday evening, there were now seven patients in Cape Town hospitals, up from three the previous day. This episode features an in-depth interview with Wendy on the deaths and the province's state of preparedness after three weeks of intense focus. Global infections of COVID-19 rose above 550,000 Friday, with cases in the United States jumping another 25% after Thursday's 48% surge. At just over 86,000 people, there are now more confirmed American infections than in any other country. Italian infections continue rising strongly, with the number now close to the near 82,000 of China. With more than 700 Italian deaths on Thursday, the country now accounts for a third of worldwide mortalities of over 25,000. Confirmed South African infections continue to rise at 30% a day, and by Friday had broken above 1,000. Despite the country officially entering a 21-day lockdown, many citizens continue to congregate in public places. More on that in an interview with Discovery's Dr. Nolotandu Nematsuerani. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson confirmed Friday morning that he had tested positive for COVID-19, joining a number of other members of his cabinet. The UK is now in day five of its lockdown, but infections continue to rise at over 20% a day. A call for volunteers to assist its National Health Service received support from over 600,000 people. The UK is also the biggest supporter to CEPI's drive to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, having pledged £544 million to the project. Later in this episode, BizNews' UK correspondent Linda van Tilburg shares with us what it's like living in London right now. After a strong week for shares, supported by the promise of massive cash injections from the U.S. government and its central bank, share prices eased back on Friday. Analysts note, however, that the 20% bounce in prices this week means that technically stocks are back in a bull market after what was theoretically the shortest bear market 
in history. We're joined now by the Premier of the Western Cape, Alan Windy. Uh, Premier, it's been a tough day for you with the first deaths uh, from COVID-19, South Africa's first deaths of COVID-19 in your province. Yes, no, very tough day. Um, I I remember vividly on the 11th of March when we actually had this showcase. We wanted to show the media that we were ready for corona and we went down to Tigerberg Hospital and we were going to show them the the lockdown facilities and the quarantine facilities and how ready we were. And on the way there, I got the message that we'd had our first positive case. And so when I walked into that hospital, the the, the sort of readiness um, changed to the first case. And I still remember after that saying, are we ready for the first death? And, uh, you know, we were so consumed by by lockdown. Uh, we had three patients in ICU uh, we'd al- already had patients going into ICU and out. We knew we were around about 200 cases and, you know, you didn't even think it was going to happen. Lockdown was what we were focusing on. And this morning I was waiting to hear about uh, how things had, the, the roadblocks had worked and, and how lockdown was happening. And I got the message of two deaths, not just one. And so, yes, a somber day, um, a day that really lands what, what, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, we're doing it to actually mitigate uh, deaths, and uh, we want to you know, mitigate thousands of deaths, but uh, it really hit home today. There were a couple of myths that were shattered by this. It's supposed to be only old men who die of COVID-19, and there was a 28-year-old who had only absolutely. been admitted yesterday. Uh, was this a surprise to you too? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, that was the biggest surprise, I think. You know, you, you assumed, and I mean, this is one of the problems, I think, when we assume too much. You assumed that it was going to be either someone who was elderly or someone who was immune compromised. We have a lot of people in our province who are HIV positive, who are, have TB and have diabetes. And you, so you assumed it was either going to be someone from the vulnerable groups and uh, definitely not female because male is definitely also more vulnerable and less able to deal with this to female and right in the middle of this uh, uh, you know a 28 year old and a 48 year old woman uh, both women and uh, wow that actually just added to the to the power of the punch that uh, that we took this morning were, were either of them at Tigerberg uh, yes one's at Tigerberg and one is in the private uh, in a private uh, uh, facility um, and yeah, as you say, the, the, she came in last night and, um, in actual fact, uh, it was one of those things where the doctors have clinically signed it off as COVID, but we actually didn't even have a positive test on the 28 year old. So we've got a confirmed COVID 48 years old and I have 98% certainty of COVID year old women, but, uh, that test still to come in. But uh, everybody in the medical field are, are, are certain that, that, that both of these are COVID cases. Do you have any others uh, who have been hospitalised in the province? So, yes, we had three yesterday and we've got seven today. Um, and hospitalised doesn't always mean that you stay there, but uh, you know, obviously three to seven. And yesterday, three, I wasn't even worried about uh, whether anybody was going to be on, uh, you know, getting closer to to death door. And and uh, this shows you how quickly things move. And I mean, yesterday we were sitting under 
under 200, and now we're on 260 cases by 2 p.m. today. So you can also see the spread of the virus uh, is, and the contagion of this virus is is so strong and uh, so virulent. It just it's it, it takes your breath away every single day when you see these numbers and. And that's why uh, I'm so in support of this lockdown, um, and we've got to take it seriously. And we've uh, we've got to measure the 21 days, and uh, it could even go longer than the 21 days, especially if you look at what's happening in other parts of the world. The lockdown is not working particularly well in parts of Gauteng. How is it going in Western Cape? No, we've also got our problems here. Um, definitely in a number of towns uh, and in a number of parts of the city. Uh, people are just carrying on as if uh, there's no change. So uh, at the 10 o'clock meeting I had today, we'd already had 52 roadblocks, 51 arrests, um, but definitely insufficient. And uh, we've this afternoon again uh, got between military SAPs, our metro police, and our traffic police uh, roping them in as well, that we've got to get out there to, to put a lot more pressure on citizens who don't realize the the enormity of uh, of what we're facing as a society. Um, so uh, I really want uh, more arrests if people are not going to adhere. And the second thing is obviously people can go out uh, to get groceries, uh, to go and buy, uh, you know, get from chemists or pharmacies and as well get medical care. Um, that's the only reason you need to be out of your home, and we've found long queues at some of our shopping centres. So we need to actually have a look at mitigating measures there, um, because people also aren't adhering to the one and a half metre spacing. Um, so yes, we've still got some work to do. Day one of the lockdown, um, I'm not too unhappy, although I would have liked to have seen it across the board, everybody staying at home. But uh, I think generally uh, fairly good in the region. But obviously those hotspot areas, we've got to make sure we up our game. And there will be more military coming into the region over the next two days and uh, making sure that uh, that we're dealing with this. And my plea always is to all of society is it's all of our responsibility to mitigate the risk. Uh, we've got our first two deaths. Um, the risk is that we move to thousands of deaths, and that's why we're doing what we're doing, and we need everyone to take co-responsibility in, in dealing with us. Social media is amazing at times like this. You can pick up uh, all kinds of information, including a video that's doing the rounds, which I've had confirmed is is uh, legitimate, in Alexandria, where there's a KFC store with a lengthy queue. Is that uh, also allowed in, in the Western Cape, where fast food outlets can remain open? Um, so as far as I'm concerned, the answer is no. Uh, they cannot remain open. You can only go to buy groceries. Um, although I know that there has been an appeal uh, to relook at the regulations around food outlets, but not to be open to the public. In other words, uh, a, a restaurant or a, or a fast food outlet like a KFC could still prepare food, um, and then there would be a delivery system. But uh, that is still uh, illegal at the moment. Um, there is a, there is an application to say surely this makes good sense if you're trying to keep people behind closed doors, um, especially vulnerable people. Um, it's even uh, you know try and keep them behind closed doors from just going shopping. So surely if we could deliver a meal to them, it would be better. Um, so uh, we have got that application in uh, with the with the regulators at the moment, but definitely at the moment it is illegal. When the president announced, he said that homeless people would be looked after. Have you got any particular or, or special plans in that regard? 
Okay, so we have a number specifically in the biggest problem sits in the city of Cape. Um, we have a number of shelters, and uh, I think as of yesterday, all of the shelters were full bar, 192 beds, I think it was, um, and still trying to put, but we've got a couple of thousand homeless people, um, and so the teams are out today uh, creating temporary shelters um, and having a look at how, of course, it's, it's uh, you can't create uh, congregations of temporary sh- shelters. You've got to create spaces that people can also have uh, social distancing. Uh, we also have still have 300 um, uh, uh, foreign nationals in a church in the middle of the city, um, and we've been in the last two days in negotiation with uh, with national government and ourselves and the city for a piece of land so that we can uh, sort of repatriate uh, these people to a space where they can uh, stay for the, at least 21 days before they either integrate into society or get repatriated or uh, to their to their country of origin. Well, as if you haven't got enough problems, we know that there is a, a very serious tick problem in the Western Cape with drug-related issues. These people presumably are even more vulnerable than, than most. Correct. So, you know, drugs, gangs, uh, crime. Um, I must say that uh, and it's still very, very early days, but speaking to uh, Minister Albert Fritz, the, the MEC of Community Safety, um, since we've had the lockdown where, where liquor outlets have been closing early um, and much more sort of uh, evidence of police on the streets, um, and, and we actually have started to see a little bit of a reduction, but uh, I don't want to get too excited too early. Um, and, of course, drug addiction and alcohol addiction is a, is a big problem. Um, and so social development has got a big role to play, but also not only with our gangs and our drugs, um, also with uh, people who are needing food from feeding schemes. You know, once you close your schools and your ECDs, there are many children who don't get a meal anymore. So uh, social development is still busy setting up uh, uh, feeding schemes and mechanisms so at least we can find a meal a day for some of our, some of our youngsters. Um, and, of course, these become very difficult during lockdown uh, conditions. We know in the UK they've called for volunteers and they've had an overwhelming response to, to support the national health system there. 600,000 people have already signed up there. Yes. Have you anything similar in the Western Cape? Okay, so we haven't moved to real big open calls, although we have had a number of uh, uh, medical uh, people who have retired, uh, who we've asked to come back, um, people who who have got medical backgrounds, um, and the department has been working in a number of areas. Not that we need them today. Uh, we have sufficient medical care and medical space, but it's in the preparatory uh, uh, environment. But I suppose exactly the same thing is happening in the UK. I, I saw um, their conference centre, the big conference centre at Excel, uh, is busy turning into a 4,000-bed hospital plus two morgues. So that's quite phenomenal. What we're doing is we're trying to create a similar kind of operation, military-style tents, um, close to our hospitals with uh, sort of a 100 beds with oxygen. So it's almost a, a pre-ICU care space um, because we need to make sure we've got sufficient beds. We've done the modeling, um, which shows us that uh, sort of it'll build up April, May, June, and our modeling says June will be our peak. But hopefully we we uh, rest some of that growth now with the, with the, the lockdown, and then our modeling should 
readjust. And then it will tell us, and we've got trigger points of when we should be converting. I mean, already some uh, of the hotel space in our region is converted uh, into lockdown or quarantine, quarantine or isolation quarters. Um, and, uh, of course, the next stage would be to build these style field hospitals around the province to cater uh, for the numbers as it grows further. Are your modelings based on the 30% a day rate that we've been seeing in South Africa? So we've got a 10%, 20%, and 30%, not a day growth, but uh, but uh, total um, infection rate. Um, I must say that yesterday, last night, I was on a Silicon Cape um, sort of uh, a Zoom uh, discussion panel for an hour, and I shared a platform with the CEO of one of our private hospitals, and uh, I was listening to their modeling and our modeling. Um, there's a little bit here and there that we differ, but generally our modeling is fairly, fairly similar. Um, I agreed with them today that we would again get our teams together to just have a look and share that information um, because you need to be working on some kind of model and then we will be measuring ourselves against that model, whether we're doing better or not, um, and then also taking into account what has happened in other countries and what they've done to mitigate risk. And if we overlay all of those, it should help us to make those decisions. Uh, and also, uh, I think really exciting for me is that the agreement between private and public health care is uh, something we put together during the World Cup uh, for real emergencies. We would we would move to what we call gold standard management of health care. And that means that there's no difference between a private bed and a public bed when it comes to this crisis. Uh, a bed is a bed and an ICU bed is an ICU bed and it would go to the next uh, the next patient. And we've already got that agreement in place, which uh, really makes it a lot easier in, in that modeling to have sufficient beds. Um, but still, even that uh, means we still have to build tents and we still have to uh, uh, create extra spaces. But... Uh it sounds to me like you've been doing this planning for a little while now. I started this now probably three weeks ago. We started with our preparedness. Uh, two weeks ago, we went into 24-hour Joint Operation Command uh, status. Uh, we had uh, five work streams to start. We then moved to seven, and we're now on ten work streams. A work stream would be health or the economy or social development or education. And each of those work streams have now been working for nearly three weeks, um, but two weeks intensively on uh, uh, and working what they're doing against the modeling that we've put in place so that so that uh, we, for example, in education, um, should the schools not be able to open, we're already working on the e on the e-learning space and actually education going. But uh, from the economy, at what stage do we trigger what kind of relief um, and what are the alternatives? How do we create new economic uh, environments to fill some of the gaps, uh, repurposing? Um, I think that goes to the point earlier about businesses. Uh, one of the economic uh, uh, ideas was repurpose our restaurants. So our restaurants have to be closed, but can we not repurpose them to still produce food, package it, and then get it delivered in some way? Um, so the economics team doing that kind of thing, our transport team uh, out in the in the taxi ranks, in the buses, making sure the cleansing systems have been working and right down to uh, delaying uh, initially three months and could even go for six months. Any uh, any license expiry of a vehicle license um, and all the licensing uh, processes for for taxis and buses and things. So, yeah, lots of work. How are you keeping yourself safe? 
Well, I've actually been operating uh, remotely now. Uh, sure, I've, I've lost count of days, but I think I've been operating remotely since Wednesday. Uh, so it would have been, I'm sitting at nine days now operating remotely. I have broken that once or twice. I have chaired one cabinet meeting, uh, not remotely, but the, today's cabinet meeting was chaired remotely. Uh, we've been doing our cabinet meetings remotely for a week already. We meet every single day. The cabinet does at 1230. Um, all the teams come together in a almost military style, uh, run by Minister David Mania. Uh, they come, they come together and report back every day at 10. Um, so we've got quite a quite a strong structure going, and uh, we've we've put those processes in place right down to the last ask is that every single lead coordinator, uh, uh, workstream lead, and uh, the top management of this government have to have not just one person to take over from them if they become sick too. So uh, yeah, it's are lots you of work. are you communicating with the other provincial premiers? Um, I haven't for a while. Um, I've been a bit snowed in here, but uh, we we definitely have had lots of national, pro- national, provincial, and local government communication. I mean, if I think about the refugees, I, I think uh, Minister Motswaledi and I. I mean, the number of calls we had yesterday between each other was was quite scary. Um, and uh, so, definitely, lots of work there. Our officials, specifically around the regulations. Changes in the regulations. Our officials have been doing lots of work together. Um, so, I mean, it's it, there is one thing, and I mean, personally, phoning the president, um, him calling me. Um, so, definitely, lots of of real work. Uh, saying you know, opposition politics and politics. No time for that. We've got a we've got a country to save, and we've got people's lives to save. So I I'm really uh, happy with the relationship. Um, that we've got at the moment, and uh, there's lots of work still to do, but uh, and lots of risk, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy. Dr. Noratandu Nemetswarani joins us now, and she's the head of the Centre for Clinical Excellence at Discovery. Nolu, bad news today, first day of uh, of the lockdown, and South Africa's had its first deaths. Yes, Alec, indeed, it's a sad day, uh, but not unexpected. I think as the epidemic unfolds, unfortunately, we've uh, hit uh, the 1,000 case mark uh, in terms of confirmed cases. Um, I think um, we we were going to start seeing some fatalities coming through. But I think for me, it's also a a huge eye-opener, specifically for the general public. Um, I think people have not been hitting the call to actually, you know, prevent the spread of the virus. I think maybe, you know, and you know, the sad um, death of these two patients is going to maybe be a wake-up call to the broader public in terms of, you know, adhering to all the recommendations that have already been outlined regarding, you know, uh, us having the spread, specifically when we think about the most vulnerable, um, you know, population groups. But the reality is that South Africa is now on this leaderboard that you don't want to be on, which uh, is put together every day by, or continuously by John Hopkins University. And I see that the first two deaths here uh, same as Mauritius, Singapore, UAE, Iceland, yes. Cuba. This virus is going everywhere. Definitely, it is going everywhere. And I think for me, I think it's day one lockdown, like you said. 
but you still are seeing, uh, you know, volumes of people on the streets still, you know, roaming the streets. And you can see that there's no appreciation and realization of of the severity of the situation that we are actually facing if we do not keep the spread. Understanding that our numbers are also still underreported because of the current backlogs in terms of the testing. So we are actually anticipating that a lot more people are confirmed positive, but they are currently, you know, roaming the streets and, you know, still continuing to interact with people and potentially spreading the virus even more. Why? Where does that come from? I think for me, you know, if you take lessons from Italy, um, I think even with them, when the initial, you know, um, restrictions were imposed, the young people, you know, felt invincible. They felt like, you know, they are not really affected by this as a disease of the old people. So it's the old people that are affected. We are seeing similar trends in South Africa right now where, you know, um, people continue to have parties. You know, it's, you know, life as usual. And the, the sad part is that, you know, this virus also has a long incubation period. So you can feel fine after your party. But the problem is that we also don't know much about, you know, asymptomatic spread. They are, you know, studies that are indicating that there might also still be asymptomatic spread. So the major concern is that people continue to spread this uh, this disease. And yes, uh, older people are affected the most because of underlying chronic conditions. You know, they are the, the, the weakened immune status that they might find themselves in. But it doesn't mean that young people will not be affected as severely also because some uh, young people might be living with chronic lung disease like asthma. You know, so um, there, there, there really needs to be a change of mindset you know, in our in, in our population, specifically young people who may actually be staying with these vulnerable people and they go out there and act irresponsibly and continue to spread uh, the infection in their in their families. Nolu, I spent time with Yabonga a couple of weeks ago. That's a HIV AIDS outreach uh, initiative in, Ka- in uh, Kalicha, um, where the people there are were born with HIV AIDS and they've also always yeah. been on medication. Are they vulnerable, mm-hmm. these AIDS, AIDS orphans or, or indeed anyone who has HIV? So, you know, because there isn't much data that has come out of, you know, of China and other countries because of prevalence, what we know about HIV is that specifically if you've got a, a low CD4 count and are not on treatment or you may not have st- tested and therefore we don't know your status, that you may actually be at risk of severe disease because of the fact that your immune system is not functioning enough. So what we have done is to reference, you know, the flu data where we know with influenza, um, you know, HIV patients are usually impacted severely, which is why we actually advocate for them to, to vaccinate against influenza. Even in the absence of data, we still are very concerned that our HIV uh, population might be hit the hardest um, with this particular uh, infection, specifically those who already have, you know, uh, lung disease like TB. So you've got HIV, TB coexisting, um, you are more likely to have more severe disease. So um, we, we really are, I think um, the, 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 the health professionals are all, and, and I think even our government, everybody is really um, uh, very uh, anxious about what this could do 
uh, to our, you know, to our patient population and also to our healthcare system, considering that we are sitting with uh, one of the largest um, HIV programs in the world. We also heard uh, overnight that China has closed its bar- its uh, its country. It's not allowing anybody in. Uh, closed all of the borders. Is this something that uh, South Africa has implemented yet? Yes, I think we 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 have. Uh, I think the president announced uh, that people who are coming from which is who are not uh, South African citizens, will not be allowed into the country. And I think the reason why China has actually adopted that stance, if you look at their cases, the, the new cases that they've been reporting on, I think the, the latest numbers were actually <laughs> mainly imported cases. So uh, I think they've uh, managed to reduce a uh, local spread uh, within China. And now they are seeing that they are actually importing new cases into the country, which is why they have decided maybe to 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 adopt that particular stance. And I think even for us, um, I mean, in the initial stages, most of the cases were imported before we started seeing local transmission. Now we are seeing, I mean, obviously some very irresponsible behavior of people who are known to be confirmed cases who are not isolating, who are roaming the streets. So there's that component of obviously contain in fact it's mitigation um in, in our in 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 our own country but also preventing new cases coming through into the country because I think if you look at our stats still the bulk of the cases that were confirmed over seventy five percent were imported cases. So it's how you limit, you know, um, new cases coming from uh, external outside of the country. Obviously, if it's still South African citizens, they will be allowed into the country, but there will be stricter measures to make sure that once people have entered the country, they are still quarantined and, you know, monitored um, appropriately to to ensure that they don't um, continue spreading the disease. Nolu, on the day before the president made his announcement, we were sent a clip of uh, a meeting that was that the acting chief of the defence force uh, held and se- spoke to the the army and the generals and he said this is a a very serious situation that we're in they were they outlined uh, exactly how the the military were going to be deployed around the country to mm. presumably have some kind of a, or to enforce the lockdown but this irresponsible behaviour that you you're talking about sounds like the police and the military are, are not able or, or to enforce what what needs to be done. So I think if you look, um, Alec, I mean, uh, I'm still really looking forward to see how, you, you know, visibility of, of the police and the, and the, and the, and the military um, is seeing that I mean, this is day one of the lockdown. I would really like to see how they are, you know, uh, you know are being deployed into the various areas. I mean, we, we, I'm, I'm, I've seen some early reports. I mean, in Alex, it looks like people are just uh, continuing as normal. So we would like to see how they enforce that. But I think for me, I mean, in one of my, of, of, of the WhatsApp groups that I'm in, where a person really, I mean, they know that they've tested positive, but they are continuing, um, to have, you know, uh, contact with people. And, um, I don't know whether it's intentionally spreading the, the virus. Um, in, 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 in the area where I live, um, yesterday we saw one 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 family having a party. So I'm just saying there's still some uh, some behavior that is not really aligned with what we are saying, with what the media is portraying, with what the government is saying, with what the health professionals are saying. There's still 
some misalignment in terms of how people are receiving this message and how they are actually carrying on uh, with their lives. So my worry is that if you've got one person, I mean, we're having a conversation with one of my colleagues around how some of these uh, parties can actually result in in the in, in in massive spread of of the of of the virus. So I really I don't know whether you know the two cases that have sadly lost their lives um, are, are going to be enough to 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 just bring the awareness uh, to the fore for for the people who still think this is a joke. Maybe you can just unpack for us again what the symptoms are. So actually, Alec, it's, it's, it's been quite interesting because in the early days, we, we were really highlighting, you know, three major symptoms, which is fever of a temperature of more than 38 degrees Celsius. We're talking about a dry cough and we're talking about shortness of breath. And I think as the, as the epidemic unfolds, we start seeing and hearing about other symptoms that were not previously um, uh, documented or even spoken about. So we've heard uh, from some patients that they, you know, loss of smell and loss of taste has been one of their major and very early symptoms of, of COVID-19. And um, there were some other reports around, you know, um, you know, okay, sore throat is one as a symptom and also some, some reports of diarrhea. Um, so I think one and, and um, severe tiredness for some people. So there, there are certain symptoms, and I think people will have a different way of presentation. And obviously, once the disease is severe, then, you know, it's pneumonia symptoms. It's people who have real breathing difficulties, and those will be admitted. But I think it can be as mild as just a sore throat with a fever and major tiredness. Um, but uh, these new um, symptoms that have been reported that seem to be quite to be more prevalent in the milder disease need to be also noted so that when people start experiencing them, they can also be alerted to a potential diagnosis of COVID-19 and therefore seek, um, you know, care from from their doctors and also get, um, you know, tested for for COVID-19. So how do they do that physically, given that uh, certainly my GP said, don't come into the uh, into the waiting rooms or into our rooms because if you do, you're going to put me onto a 14-day suspension. Let's talk over Skype. So she's one of the more progressive people. Um, but how does someone say living in a in a uh, an underprivileged community act when so they've got is, these symptoms? No, which is why we've got the national COVID uh, hotline. I think it's it's a very important message to 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 send out to the to to the public that you don't have to go to see a doctor. From a discovery point of view, we have set up virtual consults where you can actually have this consult with remotely with your clinician. They can discuss the symptoms with you and then can, they can guide you through the process of testing because um there is obviously that initial assessment that says um, do you have the, the, the symptoms that meet um, criteria for, for testing? And then they can then tell you where to go because the private labs um, and even NICD are doing the testing, but they want to make sure that when you do go there, you're not going to be turned back because you don't meet criteria. So that process of consultation with your doctor remotely can actually get you um, assessed um, and then uh, you can be guided through the, process, uh, to the, through the testing process. So that national hotline number is 0800-029-999, yes. 0800-029-999. And anybody then who feels these symptoms, get on the phone, 
phone the the uh, the hotline and you'll be told what to do yes 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 that hotline is important because then you know even people who are who may be anxious about other symptoms because remember i mean we we get uh, these um these uh, queries all the time where it could be just a common cold or you know other respiratory uh, viruses that are still circulating could be giving symptoms which is why if you look at our our numbers even though we have uh, just over a thousand confirmed cases if you look at the number of tests that have been done in relation to the confirmed cases you can see that these are people who were symptomatic but have tested negative meaning not everyone who's symptomatic is going to test positive so i think it's it's also very important to highlight that but i think now that we're getting into this local transmission community spread, we are worried that a lot of people are actually going to be infected and um, they may not have traveled anywhere and um, they may have these symptoms, which is important for, for them then to, to, to be aware what to look out for. My colleague in London, Linda van Tilburg, joins us now. Linda, uh, the Prime Minister of the UK has got or has tested positive for COVID-19. A bit of a shock. Yeah, he tweeted this morning that he had it. Um, he was seen you know, quite close to people, some people in his cabinet who had it, so it might have come from there. And um, But he said he's still working from, from home, doing it, doing everything by video link, as Cyril Ramaphosa have recently shown he's done. So that, that, is, that is a shock, especially because he was the one that delayed you know, these severe measures of, of uh, a lockdown. And um, you'd wonder how that would affect his thinking now, whether he might think, oh, I might have to be more severe, because at the moment we can still, unlike you, we can have alcohol, have alcohol and we can take our dogs for a walk once a day or for a run once a day. So it, it, it's interesting to see how he reacts. And also interesting, I can add to your story, is that um, Putin's, apparently confirmed, the Kremlin confirmed that his press secretary has it. So it would be interesting to see how many world leaders are now starting to contract coronavirus. Well, according to John Hopkins University, uh, at the moment we've gone through 550,000 confirmed cases internationally. UK is sitting there in seventh highest in the world, 11,800, but I suppose more concerning, 578 deaths. Is it just hitting the older people in the UK, because uh, we'll talk about South Africa in a moment, um, where it isn't the case. Well, um, that's the, that has changed, because in the beginning it was just that. But the, the elderly people here have been in the lockdown now. They've been, they've been sectioned off um, weeks ago, you know, in a 12-week lockdown. So the interesting thing is that a 21-year-old died. In London, and the cases are all seen to be centered around Westminster, you know, near Parliament, but that whole borough it's called, and um, which which is interesting. They not the demographic is still elderly people or people with um, um, you know other complications, but there are more younger people also succumbing to it. And you know, if you look at at, at the UK cases, it jumped by two thousand overnight. But they're hoping that with the new measures, it's now been five days, you probably won't see results immediately. You guys won't either because you're a little bit behind us. Um, you would hope that it starts going down now, and that's what they're hoping, that you know, that it would show within a week or so. The trend, and the United States now being the biggest in the world, they were up 46% and 35% in the last two days. In South Africa, we've been running at 30% a day, almost steadily. 
and uh, in South Africa now 927 cases. If you extrapolate these kind of numbers, it gets to very scary figures very quickly. In the UK, though, um, although there is, uh, you are allowed to walk your dogs, uh, presumably the lockdown is working. Can we just see from our experience and talking to my children, my, my, my kids have, you know, actually live in London, they come home, but they talk to their friends. It is quiet. People on, you don't see the queues that you see at the moment at some townships in South Africa. If, if even if I go and walk my dog, you know, if I start walking and somebody comes along, we would immediately switch pavements and stay. There is a big going on. Even if you go to supermarkets, you'd see that people would stand like three meters apart from each other. So people are taking it seriously now, and I think that's what needs to happen everywhere. So we'll see. You know, we'll see if the numbers start ca- coming down and um, whether those those figures, the deaths, are coming down and have a proper demographic of who's actually being affected by this, I think. Well, when you've got more than 500 deaths, it goes quickly through the population. In South Africa, the first two deaths are a 28 year old and a 48 year old both women so it kind of destroys two myths first of all that it's old men only that that get this yes definitely because they said that women seem to have because of some vaccinations they get at the age of 16 which men don't get apparently uh, um, because of pregnancies and that that they might have better immunity but in South Africa that that is a surprising figure and you would have thought that the younger population in Africa gives it a little bit more immunity than, you know, these populations like you see in Italy and here in the UK. But here, the, the elderly people, you don't see them. You don't see them in shops. They have special slots in the morning that they can go to the shops and people adhere to that strictly. I literally have not seen an elderly person walking out, running out in the past five days. When the UK only had two deaths, it was probably similar that people didn't really take it that seriously no because if you looked at the you know jokes on tv and, and and people in london remember it was we were at that stage and there was a sunday with nice weather you know you know what it's like here in the beginning of spring everybody went to the parks and to the beach and and and, and brits are normally quite you know they're quite law-abiding unlike south africa we like to bend the rules a bit um and they also all went to the beach and sat there together you know having a whale of a time so i think it takes a long time for nations to really get to grip of this and that's the problem that happened in italy it happened here but i think people are here are a little more, bit more serious and it m- might take a little while for south africa for it to sink in and hopefully there aren't large-scale transmissions in that period what has the reaction been like to the Prime Minister uh, contracting this disease? Well, this is the second high-profile person because Prince Charles has it. And everybody wonders, was he near the Queen? Because, you know, how the British feel about their Queen? Um, so so the, the reaction is almost shock because, you know, Boris has a partner who's pregnant who lives with him in number 10 Downing Street, where he is um, isolating himself now. So, yeah, it's a sense of shock. And you kind of think, you know, was the first one was Joe, if I'm from Canada. I don't know if he said since then she's well. Um, I, there's almost a resignation that a lot of people are going to get this and hopefully they will come out of it and will not be one of those serious cases because, you know, they've, they've turned some of the big sporting centers here. They've turned them into, into wards for hospital beds. So, so they just hoping that they can contain this period of, of that people might have to go on respirators. And there's, there's quite an interesting, um, 
drive from business to develop respirators. There's, there's sort of that past World War era, what, what there was in the Second World War of taking factories and, and repurposing them to start making um, respirators and ventilators. So um, still not in control. It's not in control in many European countries. Are you able to go out and shop? The shops, but also I, it's so funny how sort of this new realization has changed my habits. You know, I used to just jump to the shop quickly. Let's go and fetch that, fetch this. But I sort of make it to every two to three days now. I've changed it and we stay away from each other and I go to shopping center or a place where there's huge aisles. I can still, I can still go, but they want, don't actually want you to drive. They want you to just quickly walk and come back. And how well prepared are, is the National Health Service? I recall that there was a, a request for volunteers. Was that well supported? That was incredible because they asked for 250,000 volunteers and there's a website and it's literally ticking, ticking up, up and it's more than 600,000 people who volunteered. The people are really want to help and last night at eight o'clock at night, everybody, they asked everybody to come out onto their balconies, into their front gardens and to give a clap to the NHS. And that was a really emotional moment because everybody did in their millions, you know, through WhatsApps, this has spread, go and clap the NHS because those people are under severe stress. You, you hear the interviews on various radio stations all the time. Um, you know, it was decimated because there was so little funding for it. So, so it, it is in trouble, but it, it, it thinks right now they maybe can give all the beds and, and they do not want to get into the situation that Italy has at the moment. Italy doesn't give ventilators to people that are a little bit older. I think it's something like 65, which is really young. They do not want to get in that situation and they sort of bravely say they're ready, whether they're not for this deluge of people because if it jumps 2,000 a day and doesn't start leveling off, um, I don't know if they're going to be ready for that. Linda, just explain that. So in Italy, if you're over 65, they won't give you a ventilator because they don't have it and they just expect that, well, you're going to have to do your best and good luck, maybe you'll pull through, but perhaps not. Yeah, many many of them. That 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 that's not report for the whole of Italy, but parts of Italy have run out of ventilators, and they the, the numbers are so big. And Spain is backing up now to where Italy is that they literally think, oh, elderly people, you know, if you make it, you make it; if you don't, you don't. So you started making a really difficult decision about who lives. Have, is there any good news on the horizon? Anything about vaccines or drugs or with all those universities that the UK has, any progress there? Yeah, everybody's working it and Oxford was talking about, about it. There's, there's news all the time. But the problem with any drug is the amount of time it takes to test. So they're also looking at chloroquine, like in South Africa, you had the story about the donation. Um, they're looking at, at cures in the meantime, and, 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 and they're working on drugs. Oxford is working on drugs. They're all trying to fast track it. But how do you quickly can you get a gr- drug to people? You know, it goes, they're not going to throw the, the sort of safety pre- um, precautions that they are now out of the window for it. But, yeah, they're working full-time on, on drugs here. They're working full-time in many, many places and in South Africa as well. So you're still growing at 20% a day. Uh, yep. that, that's going to take quite a while yet before the UK settles down. What's your, what's the sense out there? Is there, is it, is it a nation that's, um, that's, that's panicking? 
Um, the panic, the big panic in the beginning, like the buying and stuff, that's over. There's a slight resignation, just how long is this going to last? In other words, people, we've been five days into lockdown. You'll see you guys are still, woo, first day, kind of busy playing my kids. This can be fun. And eventually, you know, it's, it's, there's sort of a resignation. We've got to do this. And people are scared. If they don't do it now, it will continue. And the effect on the economy, is, I mean, it's devastating. It's devastating for everybody. And they're trying to bring in measures they've overnight brought in measures for self-employed people, but it only covers a little bit of, of it. So people are worried. People are worried they're not going to have jobs. Um, and, and they, oh, there's, there's or the new trend this is that they are trying to work, to get tests done to work out who has immunity now. So, so this figure of 2,000 a day, the, the positive cases, they think there must be so much more because they don't test widely. You, most people stay at home unless their symptoms are severe and then they get tested. So what they're trying to do is to try to work, to come up with a test where you test who has immunity. So you can send those people back into the economy, back to work, back on, back to working on the NHS. And what's the timing on that one? Well, that is days. Days, I've only worked on it a couple of days. So they, I've, I've listened to a long interview on the BBC this morning of a scientist who said that what is interesting about that, you, you probably have to have a sum, you know, account the level of immunity that you have before you do this. But he thinks it would be successful, even though there's been some people who have got it again. But the second time wasn't as severe. Even there was a 102-year-old woman in China who got it again, but they managed to cure her as well. So that's what they're working on, to try to get people who can be economically active out, you know, and start to start working. Friday was day one in South Africa's 21-day lockdown and it may still seem to be like fun with a return to games with the kids or dips in the swimming pool for those who have them. But as it drags on, having children interrupt work together with negative news and uncertainty around the pandemic means that there could be a marked increase in anxiety levels. Carol Massar and Jason Kelly from our partners at Bloomberg spoke to a TED Talk anxiety specialist Sian Bailock from Columbia University on dealing with online education and more importantly, how we can deal with anxiety, lack of physical contact with our fellow beings and the growing fear in society. It is definitely complicated and, you know, I think the role of an institution here in a place like Barnard that prides itself on a world-class education, our faculty, our teachers, they're also scholars, is helping support the faculty and the students so that they can all learn together. Um, whether that's giving faculty tutorials about using Zoom and how to engage classes and also giving students the same sort of tutorials and help and just tips for staying focused and engaged. Just like you would in a classroom, having your cell phone right next to you is not so great for focusing and being attentive, and that's certainly true online as well. President Pilock, I do wonder, too, about what kinds of things that you guys are implementing, whether it's online learning or virtual tours for folks who want to come see you know, the college, um, that you think might actually stick around longer term. Yeah, I think there are really some opportunities here to make sure that we're able to engage students and parents, families, interested parties, alums from across the globe. So some of the virtual tours, we're doing um, check-ins with faculty, even for alums, to learn about what's happening in the classroom. I've already heard that many parents are peeking over their students' shoulders as they're taking part in classes. I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to get more folks engaged in education. 
You gave an amazing TED Talk uh, that Carol sent around, uh, and two million people, I think, plus have seen. You understand, you you were a psychologist, uh, a cognitive scientist, I should say, by training. You understand stress, and this is a stressful time. How do you, what, what's the lens that you're looking through to help us maybe cope with everything that's going on around us? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've spent my career studying anxiety in the brain and in a way that makes me well-situated to think about these times and how we support our community. I think the first thing is to really understand that it's okay to feel anxious right now. We often feel anxious when we have a loss of control and we don't know what's going to happen. In fact, in my research, when we actually peek inside the brain, when we use neuroscience techniques to look inside the brain, we see the areas in the brain involved in fear involved in negative emotions are most activated before something negative happens. It's kind of the what if. You don't know what's going to happen. And so this is a time where we have a lot of these what ifs, and it's okay to be anxious. Uh, but in doing, in knowing that, this is also a time to cut yourself some slack, to have self-compassion. We know that we often are harsher on ourselves than we are on everyone else around us. It's that little voice in your head. And it's time to be compassionate with ourselves, to say it's okay to be stressed. We don't have to have everything planned out. And our goal is to focus on the little things that are taking us one day at a time. Well, especially right in a situation where we have really no control over what's happening. I mean, our world has been turned completely upside down, President Bylock, and we've just got to kind of, you know, wait for the answers or wait for the situation to change. And I would say now is the time to focus on what you can control. So for our mm. students, we talk a lot about making schedules. So even though you're not maybe having all your normal routines, what schedules can you have? You have class. Can you also set aside some time to study? Maybe you have a Zoom study group with friends. Um, are there times when you can just get on Zoom socially to hang out? Actually compartmentalizing that time, having some control, of course, getting away from your device, looking out the window, going outside, even as you're social distancing, making that part of a schedule or routine can give us a sense of control that can actually reduce some of the anxiety. That's a great piece of advice because I have found that since we've shifted, I'm just going on almost a week at home now, that it's very easy to not stop working <laughs> and kind of yeah, keep going. No, please go ahead. It's very easy to do that. Um, and actually one of my senior team said to me today, her office was across the street from mine, and she said, I realize I miss running across the street to your office because it was a couple minutes to just get outside and not have my phone. And so I'm creating the virtual running across the street, she said. Yeah, no, it is interesting, too. And, and to that point, I mean, I think as much as we do virtually, and I see this in my kids, I see this in myself, you know, I'm looking at Carol sort of via video conference right now. But, you know, we are usually about three feet from each other for right. many, many hours a day. Our whole team is together. And, I mean, there is some, I think, anxiety and, and worry sort of embedded in that of not having that sort of physical connection, even if even just physical proximity, right? Yeah, and we know that loneliness can affect health, can affect how we feel. So I think it's important to try and get some of those connections where you can. Um, we are talking to our students about making sure even in a larger lecture class that they turn on their video just to have that connection. Mm -hmm. We know that looking at people's face gives you a lot of information, actually, about how they're think thinking, how they're feeling, even their body posture. So be engaged in that way. And then 
figure out what time you're going to turn your computer off. And if you have family or friends around in your apartment or in your uh, home, you know, spend some time with them. Figure out what you can do that is really meaningful. I think your leadership has been pretty incredible. And I do think we're at a time where we are looking for leadership any any thoughts to our listeners and to those folks who are running companies uh, and just trying to figure out how to get through and they're, and they're managing a personal life, a professional life, concerned about their family, concerned about their workers? I think really showing your um, company or the community that, you know, you, you are in this with them, that this is anxiety provoking for you, but here are the steps you're going to take. Really being part of the situation can be really effective for people knowing that we're all on the same page. Governments around the world are having to weigh the macabre decision between the cost of shutting down economies versus saving lives. In South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa opted for trying to save as many lives as possible. In the U.S., however, President Donald Trump is looking for a different balance by shooting for a reduction in infections and opening up the economy by Easter. The U.K.'s Boris Johnson initially dithered But after a scary research report from Imperial College that suggested over 500,000 Brits could die of COVID-19, he changed course and implemented a lockdown. In this program, from our partners at the Wall Street Journal, Rebecca Balhaus and John Hilsenrath explain the ongoing debate in the U.S. and how economists are evaluating the costs of combating the pandemic. Last week, the White House issued a set of instructions that urged all Americans to help coronavirus. Those instructions included recommendations to avoid groups of more than 10 people, to not eat at restaurants, and to stay home as much as possible. The White House said these social distancing guidelines should be followed for at least 15 days. But about a week later, the president began to talk about backing away from those guidelines. Even as cases were skyrocketing. The reason? To help the economy. America will again and soon be open for business. Uh, Very soon. A lot sooner than uh, three or four months that somebody was suggesting. Uh, A lot sooner. We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. We're not going to let the cure be worse than the problem. Today on the show, how the U.S. is grappling with the trade-offs between protecting the economy and protecting public health. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Thursday, March 26th. Rebecca Ballhaus covers the White House. And she says that even before the outbreak, the economy has always been front of mind for President Trump. The economy, of course, has been one of the biggest things he's touted in his three years of presidency. It's been a really big part of his reelection campaign. Possibly his biggest selling point was the fact that he has this roaring economy and that so many people have work. But in the past month, a lot of that economic progress has vanished with the spread of the new coronavirus. The stock market has lost trillions of dollars in value, and more than three million people filed jobless claims last week, nearly five times the previous record. And as the economic picture gets worse, two factions have emerged within the White House about what to do. 
Because this isn't just an economic slowdown. It's a public health crisis. So on one side of the debate are Trump's public health advisors, whose first priority is to stop the spread of the virus. That's people like Debbie Burks, who we've seen in a lot of these briefings, Tony Fauci, who's also been in some of the briefings. And their main concern is making sure that we flatten the curve of the virus so that you don't have hospitals being even more overwhelmed than they are now. And on the other side of this debate are people in the administration who are worried about the economic effects of a prolonged shutdown. That's people like Larry Kudlow, the top White House economic advisor, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. These are people who are worried that the longer you shut down the economy, the harder it is going to be to get back. And we spoke to the conservative economist, Stephen Moore, who said that he's been talking to the White House about the need to quickly reopen U.S. businesses. The phrase he used was that if we're in the situation we're in six weeks from now, the carnage to the economy will have cascaded to a great effect. No matter what the White House does, there will be major consequences for the economy and for public health. But the question is, can you keep social distancing measures in place long enough to fight the disease without keeping those measures in place so long that the economy suffers permanent damage as a result? And on that question, lately, President Trump seems to be more persuaded by his economic advisors. We appreciate you being here. This week, during his daily coronavirus press briefings, President Trump has started to float some proposals for how the U.S. could selectively put an end to social distancing, trying to present a combination of approaches that he says would protect public health while also reviving economic growth. This was a medical problem. We are not going to let it turn into a long-lasting financial problem. Started out as a So we saw the president this week talk a little bit about, you know, you can't keep the entire country shut down indefinitely, but you could use more targeted measures, possibly making the guidelines restricted to places where there have been bad outbreaks of coronavirus, like New York. New York, you have areas which are troubling, and we'll be working with the governor and the mayor and everybody else on those spots. And you could maybe target the social distancing guidelines to groups that are most vulnerable, like the elderly and those with underlying conditions. We're going to be taking care and watching very closely our senior citizens, especially those with a a problem or an illness. We're going to be watching them very, very closely. And we can do that and have an open economy, have an open country. So these seem to be some of the things that the administration is talking about. He keeps saying we can do both things at once. We can stem the spread of coronavirus and we can help the economy. What do health experts say about whether that sort of middle ground of stemming the virus and maintaining the economy, whether that's possible or feasible? I mean, what what we've seen from health experts is that they say that you need to keep people apart or the virus will spread. So I think having vulnerable groups stay home, but having the virus raging among the rest of the population, most health experts would not approve of that plan because what they have recommended is that you want to keep people apart and that actually stems the spread. This conversation and this trade-off that people are discussing seems almost unsavory. We're talking about two really bad options, letting, you know, the economy completely seize up or 
not doing anything and having so many people die. How can people even have this conversation and do it sensitively? That's a very good question. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it is unsavory in some ways. You're talking about, you know, how much money is worth it to let X many people get sick. I mean, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. And I don't think that this administration has figured it out either. And I think it's going to continue to be a problem for them. This difficult question isn't just a problem for the Trump administration. It's a brutal calculation that everyone from governors to small business owners are all trying to make. How long do I put my state on lockdown? Can my business even survive all this? These are questions that ultimately touch on both public health and economic health. Most public health experts are in unison that right now, business closures and strict social distancing are essential for fighting the pandemic. But some economists who are also looking at this have differing views about the right path forward. Economists often view the world through dollars and cents. That's true even when it comes to putting a price on the coronavirus outbreak. Senior economics writer John Hilsenrath says this type of question isn't exactly uncharted territory for economists. The key issue that I think policymakers all over the country are wrestling with right now is what trade-offs do we have to make to deal with this virus? What are we prepared to sacrifice in terms of economic output and jobs and lost income in order to tame the virus? And it's a really, really complex question. This is kind of like the climate change debate compressed into days at a time. So in the climate change debate, on the one hand, there are these warnings that if we don't get climate change under control, if we don't tame the spread of carbon into the atmosphere, there are going to be a lot of very destructive social and human costs associated with people are going to die in flooding and natural disasters and dislocations. But on the other side of that, there's an economic cost to making the adjustments you have to make in order to emit less carbon into the atmosphere. This coronavirus situation, it's like that whole debate about climate change compressed into literally a few weeks time. I've never seen anything like this. As economists look out at this situation that we're facing with whether to shut down the economy, essentially, for health reasons. What are the tools that they use to evaluate this particular question? So basically what economists do is they try to figure out, well, what's the benefit of some new regulation? You know, like take a seatbelt law, right? What benefit does society get for requiring that every car driver has to have a seatbelt in the car and attached? So there are costs to it, but what are the benefits? What you do is you look at the value of the lives that you're going to potentially save. So then you get the question, well, how do you measure the value of life? And what economists do is they create this value of a statistical life. This value of a statistical life comes from studying things like salaries in different industries. For example, how much more people get paid for a dangerous job. In some instances, economists are able to determine a specific dollar amount, how much each life saved is worth to a larger population, to help give guidance on what policy measures are worth it. But this type of analysis breaks down in an extreme situation like the coronavirus pandemic, because economists don't have a lot of the information you would normally need to make that kind of a calculation. 
We don't know the probabilities. We don't know how many people in the country are infected. And because we don't know how many people are infected, we don't know what the real death rates are. We don't know something called the R0, which is how aggressively the thing spreads, how likely it is to move from one person. You know, if I have the virus, what's the probability that I'm going to pass it on to one people Mm -hmm. or two or three We don't know those probabilities. So it sounds like the value of a statistical life may not actually be that helpful in this situation. Well, I mean, no, I think it is helpful because it kind of helps you start to frame the questions. I think it's a really important tool, but we have to understand that it's an incomplete tool. Even with incomplete knowledge, economists are still trying to answer the question of how long to keep restrictive measures in place. But economists recognize that both options, keeping the economy going or shutting it down to stop coronavirus, could have unintended consequences. For instance, if you keep the economy effectively shut down in order to save lives, that choice could have its own negative health effects. You know, in the last few years, uh, they've talked a lot in the economics community about this idea of deaths of despair. You had professors and Case and Angus Deaton at Princeton who found that as inequality has risen and working class life has gotten more unstable, there's been this upsurge in what they call deaths of despair. People struggling with things like drug addiction and depression, problems related to obesity, other health issues suicide rates increasing. These are the kinds of things that in an economic downturn get worse. And it's something you really have to consider being a risk in this environment. And for the opposite choice, to ease up on social distancing to try and get the economy back on track, some economists say that approach may not be much of an economic fix. So we see policymakers in places like New York and California who are shutting down entire states. Right. And we might say, well, there's a huge cost to that shutting down commerce in a state. But we have to ask ourselves, how would people be behaving even if those states weren't being shut down? Would they still be going out to restaurants? Would they still be going to hotels or on airplanes? People would probably be self-isolating in those cases. John also points out that the advice of public health experts, which is primarily focused on stemming the spread of the disease, can also apply to the economy. You know, I think a lot of health experts would say that letting people go back to business as usual is an extremely dangerous policy because it's going to amplify the spread of the disease. It's going to increase the death toll, and there are going to be economic costs and consequences for that. And a lot of economists agree. On Wednesday, nearly three dozen prominent economists, including top officials in the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, urged the U.S. government to do everything in its power to slow the spread of the virus, saying, quote, saving lives and saving the economy are not in conflict right now. Faced with imperfect options, leaders around the country are making very different decisions. Some governors and mayors are heeding the advice of public health experts and implementing shutdowns. Other states are taking a more hands-off approach. Even if the federal government kind of backs off on its guidelines to kind of shelter in place for 15 days, the nation is not getting back to business. Cities, mayors, 
states, governors have their own restrictions in place. And, you know, I don't think the president is in a position to tell them to lift them. Even if he can't force the entire country to get back to business, the president is still trying to forge a policy that will strike a balance and get at least some parts of the economy back up and running. I think what you see what the president is doing is, you know, in his very kind of public and exposed way, a demonstration of how policymakers all over the country, all over the world, from mayors to governors to national leaders, are wrestling with the challenge of managing these trade-offs. There are no easy answers. Now we have to make the tough choices. And there are going to be costs and consequences no matter what way we go. On Thursday afternoon, the White House said it will categorize counties across the country as high, medium, or low risk to help local officials decide on their own whether to boost or relax social distancing guidelines. This has been episode 6 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.